Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The coronavirus pandemic continues, and there's a certain continuity, unfortunately, to my podcasts these days. I'd like to pick up with a point that I was making at the end of the last one. Journalism, the first rough draft of history, is written in the subjunctive mood these days. Reporters write, Doctors say, this could happen. Well, it could, it might, but then again it might not. COVID-19 is a journey into the unknown. Best to leave the speculation aside. It can only add to the public's fear. The one piece of data whose meaning can be speculated on in well-documented historical context has nothing to do with the virus. And it's this. 26 million people have filed for unemployment in the five weeks since Donald Trump announced the pandemic was a national emergency. It's the greatest number of job losses since the Great Depression. That number is more frightening than the disease itself. In the Great Depression, mass unemployment didn't happen in four weeks. From the Wall Street crash in October 1929, it would take three full years for unemployment to peak at 25% of the workforce. In no comparable period of that era did anything like 26 million, which represents 18.5% of the current American workforce, become unemployed. The Great Depression, of course, brought the government into the world of employment as it never had been before. It became the boss, providing jobs, building infrastructure, better roads connecting cities, constructing massive dams, the Grand Coulee, Hoover, and a dozen in the Deep South under the aegis of the Tennessee Valley Authority. These projects brought electricity to rural America. Then came World War II the ultimate government full employment program, and then a quarter century of recovery from the combined shock to the normal state of affairs represented by the Depression and the war. It was a period of unparalleled prosperity. Yes, there were recessions and small spikes in unemployment, but these were related to the business cycle and never got out of hand. But since 1973 and the oil shock and the great inflation, the numbers tell us a darker story about what the spikes in unemployment have meant to American society. Every major spike in unemployment has led to less secure, lower-paid work for the majority of those laid off. When Ronald Reagan took office, people who earned a living making things represented 30% of total employment in America. These workers suffered 90% of job losses in that recession. According to the Federal Reserve's history of the event, the residential construction industry and auto manufacturers ended the year with 22% and 24% unemployment, respectively. What happened next? Well, carmakers took advantage of the situation to automate. Many of those who got laid off because of lack of demand never worked an assembly line again. The manufacturing sector of the American economy and society shrank. This pattern was repeated during the shorter recession of the early 1990s. This time it was salaried workers in the defense industry that bore the brunt. Well, the Cold War was over, we had reached the end of history, right? The number of jobs in defense permanently shrank by 10%. 
Today, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, only 8.5% of Americans work in manufacturing. And you can say, well, the U.S. is now a service economy, and just before the virus hit, unemployment was at an historic low, so people just moved into different jobs. And you would be right, but on average, manufacturing work pays 12% more than other salaried employment. As for what happened after the crash of 2008, I suggest you check Google for how many references there were to the term gig economy before the crash of 2008 and after. The reason to fear 26 million people losing their jobs in a little over a month isn't the numerical proof that each shock to the economy has produced lower paid and less secure, more casualized employment. It is this. Statistics don't measure the social shock of joblessness. Where are the numbers explaining the shock in going from 30% of the workforce being in production of goods down to 8.5% today? That's just 40 years. How do you measure what it means when you are working in manufacturing, earning 12% more than other jobs, and you lose that employment? Photos of the Rust Belt, of boarded-up downtowns, and abandoned Ohio shopping malls only hint at the shock. The studies of Princeton economists Angus Deaton and Dan Case on declining life expectancy, their coining of the term deaths of despair, get at it a little more. And you can find my conversation with Deaton and Case in the FRDH website archives at www.goldfarbpod.com. I am particularly attuned to the statistically immeasurable shock of job loss. In 2005, I was laid off. I was on the wrong side of 50, working in an industry, journalism, where half of newspaper jobs and a quarter of radio journalist jobs would disappear in the next decade. I've never had full-time salaried employment since. The shock has never gone away. When you're laid off, your personal value system is completely destroyed. There are few more violent shocks to a person's identity than learning that your survival at work had nothing to do with how well you did your job. Anger subsides to bitterness. You do what you have to do, and you make do with less, but you remember, you can't help but remember, what employment at what you were good at and earning a decent living at was like, and can't help but feel the hurt. In Britain, people are not laid off. They're made redundant, a word that means, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, no longer needed or useful, superfluous. And that's how you feel. In America, where work defines you, what is your definition when you don't have any? How does a society deal with the shock of sudden mass unemployment? There's an historical example and it's not a happy one. In 1928, Germany held elections. The terrible hyperinflation crisis from the early part of the decade was over. Recovery, fragile, was underway. The unemployment rate was around 4.5%. The Social Democratic Party won the election with around 30% of the vote. The National Socialist German Workers' Party came in ninth place with a mere 2.6% of the votes cast. No surprise. The Nazi party had been banned from elections since the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch, and Hitler had done a brief stint in prison. 
there were better established, less crazy nationalist parties for voters that way inclined to turn to. Two years later, in the next parliamentary election, 1930, the Social Democrats came first again. This time, the National Socialists were second, with 18.2% of the vote. What had happened in the intervening two years? The crash of 1929's knock-on effect in Germany was a rise of 40% in unemployment. Smoldering bitterness from the defeat of World War I was reignited by the individual bitterness of losing one's job multiplied overnight by hundreds of thousands. Hitler's rage-filled performances captured the hearts and minds of many of the embittered. As unemployment grew, so did the Nazi share of the vote until, well, you know what happened next. It was the collective social memory of the consequences of votes cast and the bitterness of unemployment that led contemporary Germany to the concept of Kurzarbeit. The government, at all levels and local institutions, worked to protect employees during sudden downturns. I first learned about this in early 2009 when I went to Hamburg to report on the aftermath of the crash in Europe's economic engine room. The great port was idle, but its workers had not been made redundant. They were still employed, albeit on reduced wages. In America, people were simply laid off, and, as in the recessions of 1981, 82, and the early 90s, many never found full-time employment again. A lot of people just dropped out of the labor force altogether. It would take until just before the coronavirus arrived for wages to catch up to their pre-2008 crash levels. Many look at the 26 million laid off in the last five weeks and think, well, when the country reopens, those folks will all be summoned back to work. It's a reasonable guess to say, based on the history of the last four decades, that's just not going to happen. And then the bitterness will kick into overdrive. Bitterness already characterizes far too many in America today. The wellspring of that bitterness has been the regular shocks to the world of employment and its increasing casualization. The bitterness has been a factor in elections at all levels now for a while, and we have a big one coming in November. From what I know about coronavirus, it seems probable that it will dissipate. A vaccine will be found. Our societies will move on. I'm hopeful. From what I know about the individual shock of losing your job, multiplied by tens of millions, I can only worry. Work, more than anything, is the force that gives life meaning, and making tens of millions of lives meaningless overnight cannot come to any good. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Sorry to be so cheerful. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit. And while you're there, please make a donation. Even small amounts help to keep the podcasts coming. Be healthy. Thanks.